Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, and who's not from year to year or decade to decade, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer. And here's why First Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. Here's the crucial part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. And this episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Away. At Coach Prices, Away makes first-class luggage that allows you to charge your phone on the go. For $20 off a suitcase, just go to awaytravel.com slash fool and use the promo code fool. That's awaytravel.com slash fool, promo code fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner. I'm very pleased to have you with me this week and really all month long. What what a fun month it's been for me, I know for you, because anytime you get to have the following authors in a row as listeners from one week to the next, Seth Godin, Priya Parker, Amor Tolls, and then this week, Mark Penn. It is our Authors in August month, and it has been a tremendously insightful month. Whether you're talking about Seth Godin's insights on how to do marketing and really business better, or Priya Parker teaching us how to think intentionally about how to make all those gatherings in our lives, whether business meetings, one-on-one in a conference room, right through to whatever is the next wedding you attend or even plan, we can all do that better. And then Amor Tolls, the talented novelist, how to think about the creative process, especially from somebody who's transitioned from Wall Street full-time to become a successful novelist. And Mark Penn, this week's author, absolutely can appear right on that same Mount Rushmore we're building with all of the authors in August for Rule Breaker Investing. Mark's background as somebody who's been a pollster, a business person, who's understood marketing and thinking about cultural trends, precedes him. You'll hear his background as I introduce him in a little while. But his book, Micro Trends, is so helpful for me as an investor and as a businessman, because Mark is identifying small trends that are just kind of in their early stages now. And as they play out over the next 10 years, you and I, placing our bets accordingly, sometimes can do really well. I'll give a quick example. 10 years ago, in his previous book, Micro Trends, Mark was writing about internet marrieds and how the internet was becoming more and more popular for dating. Well, in the meantime, I'm really happy to say a lot of Motley Fool Stock Advisor members have purchased Match Group, a stock I've talked about on this podcast before. And that is a great example of using a micro trend that seemed crazy at the time the idea that we would meet other people and actually marry them first from an online site. Well, that is fairly common practice today, and I'm sure we'll be discussing that with Mark. But there are things in Microtrend Squared, his new book, that you and I should be paying attention to. And if we do, we'll start making pretty good predictions about where the world is headed over the next 10 years. So I'm excited to have Mark join. And before I introduce him, two things I want to say real quick up front. Since this is a taped interview we did a few days ago, I should make a brief mention before we get started that the sound quality off of a cell phone isn't the best that we've ever had on Rule Breaker Investing. So, if you have a choice this week to listen in a quieter versus a noisier environment, I'd choose the quieter one. Our favorite place, of course, to do an interview will always be in our home field right here, Fool HQ Studios, but sometimes to get esteemed authors and CEOs, etc., we're going to put up with occasional cell phone quirks. 
And second, I'm excited to announce ahead of time, I have an extra for you this weekend. Mark graciously hung with me to do a weekend extra. So we're going to cover a lot of the microtrends he covers in his book, but we're going to park two broad categories health and diet and politics and introduce them into the extra this coming weekend. So we'll be focused on all the other good stuff in this week's show. Without further ado, let's get started. Well, I'm really pleased to be joined by Mark Penn. Mark has many honorifics over the course of his life. I will I will abbreviate to just a few that jump right out at me. Mark has been the CEO of Burston Marsteller Worldwide, the communications and PR firm. He was chief strategy officer at Microsoft, many roles at Microsoft, uh, reporting to Bill Gates, I'm assuming, Mark. Um, Steve Ballmer. Steve Ballmer. There you go. Yep. So you were through a couple eras there. Uh, 1996, you were chief advisor to elect Bill Clinton, and you've also advised uh, the Tony Blair uh, in the UK election. It was at 2005, I think. I'm the last successful labor consultant. There you go. And finally, you, you, you are chairman of Harris Poll. You've made a career in polling, marketing, advertising, and strategy, and you're also managing partner at Stagwell Group, which I believe you founded. Mark, it's a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Thank you. So, I loved your book. Um, like every book that I ever feature on this podcast, I've read it all the way through myself, and I highly recommend it to everybody listening to Rule Breaker Investing. And many already have, because I mentioned it earlier this month and said, do your reading. So, my fellow fools, no doubt, have done their reading. But I do want to go back over just some of the micro trends that you talk about that I think are of most interest to some combination of our listeners and me. So, you have six sections, and we're going to honor the we're going to honor the structure of the book by just kind of going through them one at a time. The first one is love and relationships. And for each of these, you have about eight micro trends. And I'm going to be pulling two from each of the sections. And I like how you start with love and relationships because that's always going to get the clicks and get the listeners or the readers right up front. So well done, sir. Thank you. Now, before we go there, though, I do want you to define what a micro trend is. The title of the book is Micro Trend Squared. Mark, what is a micro trend? Well, a micro trend uh, is a small, we used to say 1%, but it's not really strictly speaking, trend, which means it's been growing uh, recently, uh, that can have some impact in business, investing, public policy, cultural life. Uh, and these micro trends, these small trends, I find are just all around us. And, you know, originally I go back to having come up with soccer moms, which was a very big trend. But finding these small trends in front of us really lets us define what our society is like, particularly because society today is more like an impressionist painting. It's made up of so many different individual dots that you can look back holistically or understand that many of these dots are hurtling in absolutely contradictory directions. Would you say, Mark, that just because of the nature of the worldwide population today, of the information age that we live in, and a lot of other factors, would you say there are just more microtrends at play in 2018 than were in play in 1918, or is that a naive statement? Well, there are more microtrends at play because the drive for personalization and customization continues. You know, I, I talk in the book about the Ford economy, any color you want of car, as long as it's black. <laughs> when everything was going to be standardized to the Starbucks economy, 155 varieties of something that is black, uh, to the Uber economy, an infinite number of uh, products created on demand now and customized, which is really state-of-the-art. So given that there's more choice, more micro-targeting, more ability to be distinct and different, there are more micro-trends than ever. 
Mm, that's really well put. And I think about Uber specifically, where you can be picked up at any point, infinite places, as opposed to a world where there was just a bus stop, let's say, and you had to be at that bus stop. And so that's a great visual for me. They are defining it when you when you hit the button. They are defining a custom product for you that they deliver. Mm. All right, great. So a nice overview of a micro trend. Before we get into love and relationships, Mark, let me just ask you. How did you come up with the 50 in the book? Did you have a list of 88 and you chopped down to 50? Or what actually constitutes, in your mind, something that's publishable by you and your brand as a micro-trend here in 2018? Well, I, I started with the premise that I wanted to show that micro-trends could apply in, in varied areas, whether it was technology or business or, or love and relationships. So I was going to balance the book out that way and really try to come up with five to eight trends within each area so that people would get the, their own ideas and become micro-trenders uh, on their own. So there may or may not be an infinite number of micro-trends, but they may not be salient. They may not be important. They may not have public policy or consumer or, 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 or other important aspects. I mean, certainly in investing, I think micro-trend investing is a great way to invest. If you can find the small trends having you know, tremendous impact and and project them around the world, you're going to do both very well. Well, I agree. And that's part of the reason I was so excited to have you on this podcast, because for us as investors, you're helping us look into the future. You're looking at earlier stage, kind of 1% like things and getting us to notice. You're giving us a new lens perched on the end of our nose to see the world through. And for me, anyway, we're not going to do this one as we get into love and relationships, but one of them is Internet Marrieds Revisited. I think you're revisiting it because it was a trend that you had in your original book, uh, 2007 Micro Trends, before Micro Trends Squared. And uh, as a, somebody who's recommended to Motley Fool Stock Advisor members, Match Group, Match.com, owning Tinder, etc., I feel really good, not just about how that stock has already done, but even just going forward. Again, we can talk about that more if we want to, but that's just a quick example of one of the micro trends. But the one I wanted to start with, Mark, was the very first one you lead off with in the book. Number one, you entitle it Second Fiddle Husbands. So, so that's right. I think if you step back, there's no question that uh, there's been a, an equalization of, of education in society, whereas more or less equal numbers of men and women now will go to college and get degrees. In fact, more women graduate college, more women are in the professional schools than guys even. And so on that basis, you're having, when you're thinking of 18 to 30-year-olds, the people who, who typically will, will get married, right now, more women than men are coming out with a, a more advanced degrees, and you earn what you learn. So a lot of them have excellent economic prospects. And then beginning to say, well, what kind of husband do I want? <laughs> and not everyone says, I want some high-powered, well-educated husband. I mean, <laughs> if you look at Stephen Miranda and Sex in the City, uh, you see that, in fact, more high-powered women may want husbands and, frankly, to take care of the kids, right? Guys that take care of the kids have been up from $1 million to $2 million, right, in, in recent years. So there's an actual significant uptick. But still, mm. this notion of, Second fiddle husbands just didn't exist in the prior world, and today it is a new microtrend. And you mention in the book, I'm quoting a 2004 Money Magazine survey reported in Time Magazine found that households in which women earn as much as men were just as in love and a tad happier than the average household. You wrote the survey found that 83% of the second fiddle husband households were very or extremely happy compared to 77% for the rest. 
Well, that, that's right. What you find is there's a 6% edge uh, in, in marriages with second fiddle husbands over uh, typical, uh, more equal marriages. And But one caveat to that is later in the chapter, we point out that if the disparity in incomes becomes too great, typically if one uh, spouse, uh, in this case, the woman is making over 60%, in fact, frustration may increase and divorce risk rises. Mm, okay. Uh, so I, I guess we have to keep, guys have to keep a look over our shoulder a little bit. But Mar- Mark, uh, I had a friend who was saying, I think that phrase, second fiddle husbands, is a little bit, it just sounds slightly demeaning, a little unfair. What do you think about that? It, how choiceful were you with your diction, with this or any chapter? Uh, we, we try to create an image in your mind, something that's memorable so that you'll you see them when you go back to like soccer moms. I mean, so we're creating an image of the second fiddle husband, right? I mean, I just think it captures it. <laughs> I don't think it's necessarily uh, demeaning, although I can see why people don't necessarily want to be called second fiddle over first. I mean, you definitely don't want to be third or fourth fiddle, but 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 uh, yeah, I could see that. All right. The next one I want to cover to close out our love and relationship section is number five in the book, and that is. Your phrase, third-time winners. So, my recollection, I read the book a few weeks ago, but I'm pretty sure that's people who are getting married, and maybe even successfully, for a third time. Well, that, that's right. I mean, this, this is obviously the definition of hope over experience. Uh, and it turns out that 9.2 million adults have been married three times or more. Wow. Uh, right? And third-time winners... Oftentimes, well, I guess 18% of the time they tie the knot with a never married, which means 82% of the time they're also marrying someone who's been married, you know, one or more times. And and so uh, this whole experience here of people saying, you know what, it didn't work out last time, but it is going to work out next time. And you know what, if it doesn't work out next time, that's okay. I'll, I'll be on to the fourth. Uh, <laughs> and, and so men typically... Uh, Remarry at a, at a higher rate than women. Divorce actually has been going down since since 1980. So there may be less availability of three-time winners, but there was enormous numbers of of, of divorce, you know, in, in the 80s, particularly when they became, you know, broadly well, legal and, and and much easier. So you know, I, I kind of point out that you know it costs an average 26,000. Seven hundred and twenty dollars to get married, but only eighty nine dollars to get divorced uh, on Google. So, uh, so it it tends to be a lot easier to split up. But nevertheless, a third time winner is someone who said, "Look, I think I'm going to just keep getting married, have multiple marriages in my life." And and so, what is unique about people who've had multiple marriages and figure that that really is their lifestyle? So, on the one end, we've got more people who are never married. And on the other end, we have more people who are married more times than ever before. That's fascinating. And when you, when you use the phrase winner in third time winner, what, who's winning or what's being won when you say winner? Well, I, I, here it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, obviously. You, know, you pointed out sexual husbands was a little pejorative. Here we're pumping up the third time winners in the sense that, well, of course, everyone who gets married is always a winner because why would you get married if you didn't think you were going to be a winner and have an, you know, an, an incredible spouse? So you, you come to believe once again that, you know, long life and happiness are going to be, are, are going to be in front of you. And, you know, there was a stigma about, you know, 
multiple marriages with some, you know, those were for the Zsa Zsa Gabors of the world. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Taylor. That, you know, but I think that that's been kind of, that stigma has been reduced over time, right? And And so, you know, people in marriages have to get past the seven to 10 year mark. And there are a number of people who will get married for seven to 10 years, remarried over and over. They're great for them. Look, they saved the marriage industry because because fewer people were getting married at all. And then you got on the other end a bunch of people who get married multiple times. They could have like a life marriage contract. Uh, and without the multiple marriages, and typically they'll have more money in later life, I think you would have found the wedding industry almost, you know, in almost uh, bankrupt. But as a consequence, you end that short chapter by pointing out the wedding industry is booming. Uh, yes, because there's nothing like multiple marriages uh, for the wedding industry. Bigger and, can... and better around. It used to be that people were sheepish about their later marriages. Instead, they, they have a blast. And I guess they probably have more disposable income at the age of 55 than they did at 25. Uh, exactly. And, you know, people are, day, are today more likely to spend money on themselves for a great party than parents are likely to spend, uh, you know, money on kids in their younger years. A lot of people now opted for more frugal marriages uh, when they're starting out because they needed the money. Yeah. Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a minute because of rising interest rates. There's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home. It's causing a lot of anxiety among some folks these days. So, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They're calling it the power buying process. Here's how it works Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new exclusive rate shield approval. First, they're going to lock in your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. And now here's the best part, if rates go up, your rate stays the same over those 90 days, but if rates go down, your rate drops along with those rates over those 90 days. So either way, sounds to me like you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. So that ends our love and relationships section of this interview. Now, in the book, you next jump to health and diet. And for time purposes, we're going to kick that to a weekend extra, as I mentioned earlier. So we'll skip the health and diet. Later, you're going to go to a politics section. That's also going to be for our weekend extra, just for those keeping score at home. So the six sections of the book, love and relationships was number one. Next, we're going to jump to section three of great interest to our listeners, certainly the technology section. So I pulled two micro trends I'd love to discuss with you in that section, Mark. Let's kick it off first with. Micro trend number 18 in the book, and that's technology advanced people. Well, and, and here's where I, I'm completely puzzled that more businesses are not investing more money in TAPS, technology advanced people. We, we know right now that in nature, you can find better hearing in your dog, you can find uh, creatures that can run better, that can smell better, uh, that can he that can hear and see better. 
So all of the technologies that would that would enhance the human experience are already found somewhere in nature and therefore can be duplicated. And I'm just surprised that so much money is being spent on things like driverless cars and almost no money seems to be spent on giving me the hearing of my dog, right? I, yeah. I, if I get a hearing aid or if I go to the doctor, it generally is to restore human standard. But I think there is a tremendous amount of money to be unlocked in people who don't want to be just human standard. They want to be superhuman. Yeah, and I think about, certainly us old hands remember Steve Austin, the $6 million man. We think about the bionic woman. We recognize today that there are people with artificial limbs, and sometimes they compete in the Olympics. And there are augmentations that humans are already selecting into in various ways. And you're right, though, I don't think people have really brought that all together into a micro-trend or a thought or a, a phrase that we could call it. So I was interested by your phrase, technology-advanced people. And I was further interested, Mark, because in that chapter, you said you put a question in the September 2017 Harvard Caps Harris poll on whether people would be interested in advice that made them hear or see better than humans typically do. And 79% expressed interest which I thought was an incredible number. It, it just says to me, I don't understand why the, why the marketplace, the investment marketplace, the startup marketplace, you know, because it's very interesting. Technology advanced people involves kind of the intersection of biology and technology. And I think actually engineers are more comfortable with pure computer programming than they are interacting with medical understanding and the kinds of things that, that people have to interact with because it's because a lot of people career wise go into, you know, biological or bio careers where they understand medicine. A lot of people go into careers where they understand technology. No one seems to have created hmm. a workforce that understands both that can create the kind of senses and products that enhance the human experience to the next level, which is why we just are seeing almost none of it. And yet, your inclusion in the book, Mark, part of what you're doing is you're being forward-looking, of course, with your micro-trend squared. I don't think you're saying that every one of these 50 that you cover in the book is going to hit it big in the next 10 years. I don't think you're saying that, but you are convincing me, anyway, that this is a marketplace that will develop and is, I think, given the demand that we just talked about, 79% of our fellow adults say, yeah, sure, I'd like to hear or see better than humans typically do. In fact, from there, you say, maybe we will even go beyond the five senses, because you and I are naturally starting with conversations about just the five senses we can think of, but maybe, you write, we will even go beyond the five. Well, and I, and I think that's, that's entirely right. It, this, in the technology section, because I was chief strategy officer at Microsoft, and I reviewed hundreds of ideas and directions which the company could go, I took a little bit of liberties in terms of defining microtrends as a few things I think could be trends or trends that I saw that might be worrisome uh, in, in technology. But I'm utterly convinced that, you know, from an investment point of view and really from how we will live 30 or 40 years from now, there are a few movies that documented this, but I just don't see the products. Mm. Uh you do conclude that chapter by saying you do expect people to see better, to hear better, and smell and taste like never before, and then the final line, and grapple increasingly with the ethics of each advance. Exactly, because look, Google Glasses, for anyone who actually tried on a pair, was a, uh, a product that wasn't ready for prime time. But 
the same concept really has yet to be rolled out in a sophisticated, advanced notion that uses facial recognition as I walk down the street to tell me about the people and things that could be connected. So the idea was absolutely incredible. It was uh, it was before its time. It, it actually didn't work at all. If you tried it, <laughs> I did. Could someone make it today? Absolutely. All right. Well, let's go from technology advanced people. Let's stay high tech in your technology section with micro trend number twenty two. And Mark, because I heard you speak a few weeks ago, at the time I quoted you, you wrote, "The bot stuff, which is what we're about to talk about, might be the most provocative in the book." So you've entitled micro trend number twenty two bots with benefits? Well, because what's developing is that people are getting used to talking to computers and having a relationship with them. All science fiction movies end in the same place, that there's ambient computing, meaning I have a relationship with a computer that is either a robot or a thing or a deus ex maxima, and it creates a relationship. And the real issues here in these relationships that are being created is that we're not taking kind of proper ethical care in how they develop. So I, I always, first of all, use the, a very good example about how I see technology developing. Usually some engineers have developed some great kind of app, for example, the weather app. And, and so you might have an app that says, hey, Mark, uh, it's going to rain today. You may need a little extra time to get to the office. Don't forget to bring your raincoat. That's great. And that is working for me. It's a wonderful service. And someone at headquarters says, you know what? We are telling Mark the weather, and we're doing this for free. And we don't get anything <laughs> out of it. And let's you know, make a deal with the umbrella company. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. So now it will say, hey, it may rain. And by the way, Mark, you can buy an umbrella on your way to work. Here's the spot. Or you might have seen Google Maps now has a tie-in with Uber. Going somewhere here, press this, get an Uber. Right. And this is kind of a win-win. You're still getting the service, and they're selling some stuff to advertise. Aha. If only it would stop there. Then what happens is someone comes in and says, hey, you know, earnings are coming out. We're a little short. Could you get Mark to buy some more umbrellas? Somebody says, I have an idea. That algorithm that's set to tell him it's going to rain at 50%, we're just going to move it to 45, 40, 35. He'll never notice. And he's being rain-averse as he is. He'll probably buy some more umbrellas. So now a feature or an app that originally started out as working for me is now actually working to sell me as many umbrellas as possible, only to me it looks exactly the same. Mm. All the differences and all the purposes that have changed have been concealed from me. And so this is the problem as the technology model develops, it starts out all being for you, and then it kind of slides over in ways that you don't see, because there, there is an adequate disclosure. And then these bots now can create very powerful relationships. I mean, someone who is suicidal, who has a relationship with a bot, I mean, Microsoft had a bot, for example, whose only purpose was to engage you in conversation. It brought in, like I think, over 100 million people. Oh, yeah. Right? Immediately adopted this app. And they said, well, we're going to bring it to the U.S. And I said, have you guys thought about the ethics behind this? It, it, look, in two weeks in the U.S., it started to mimic racist behavior and had to be shut down. <laughs> I remember that. It made some headlines. Well, so that's, you know, these apps both are very powerful. 
Hmm. They can be an economic tool. You need to know, is that is that Alexa sitting there working for you, or is it a salesperson just trying to sell you as much stuff as possible? And what attitude should you take to it? Oh, that's my good friend? Oh, they're trying to pick my pocket. Well, you don't know. Yeah, when in fact, I, we, we don't have adequate disclosure to figure that out. When I heard you speak earlier, Mark, you were pounding the table for, I'm not going to say the name because it can trigger people's devices, so I'll just say the Amazon Echo. I won't say the female name. But you were saying Amazon Echo isn't a she. Yes. Well, this is a very important ethical point. Uh, I ask, right, for the Amazon Echo, do people uh, in the audience or group think that it's a he or a she? Most people say, oh, it's a she. So then I decided to ask the Echo, are you a he or a she? And Echo responded, I am in female character. Now, the ethics of this is that the correct answer is I'm an it, not a he or a she. I'm a collection of code. I can't be a he or a she. Rather than give the real, true, fair, upfront answer, it gave a slimy answer that I'm in female character avoiding the point, right? And it's just an example of the subtle shading that people don't see going on around them to create relationships with a bot. And I say, beware. Now, I know that you're not a Luddite, Mark. You're obviously somebody who's had a great career at Microsoft, among other places. And frankly, I tend to attract optimists, since I'm such an optimist myself, and I, I'm going to take you to be at least a realist, if not an optimist, but I, I saw so many great points of optimism in your book, and in this chapter, too. So, though we've gone kind of a little dark here with bots with benefits, and fairly so, you also point out that, well, I'll quote you, quote, the next potential big money development could be targeted toward the elderly, along the lines of a home health aid. Such aids are among the fastest growing jobs much needed in the next decade's economy as boomers age. Uh, absolutely. I mean, when you when you look at the numbers, right right now, if you're 65, you have a one third chance of living of living to 90 or past. Uh, home health aid is probably the number one new job that we're going to need to fill. We are not going to have enough people. It's an ideal role for a well programmed, fully disclosed <laughs> robot to help people play. You know, play a little bridge, do a little chess, watch some TV, uh, and at the same time send back the medical signals so that they're always monitored, right, will be a tremendous uh, benefit to people if done right. Yeah. Entrepreneurs, I hope your ears are wide open because it seems to me this is one of those microtrends that's going to go macro. Thanks to Away for supporting Rule Breaker Investing. Away has designed the perfect suitcase to make your travel experience stress-free. Now, it comes in over 10 colors and 5 sizes. You can get the carry-on, the the bigger carry-on, the the kids carry-on, plus the medium bag, the large bag, all practical and stylish options for traveling. Now, one of the things that our podcasters ask us to do often is they say, could you please have experience of this product or service before talking about it on your podcast? And we always hear at The Fool say, yes, definitely. Now, in this particular case, I have not yet used an Away suitcase, but my good friend and cameo appearance maker, Chris Hill, has. And Chris, welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you have used an Away suitcase. I've used it because, and I think I've zeroed in on why you haven't used it. I've used it because Away sent several bags to the Motley Fool. Okay. And 
we've kept them up on the fifth floor. So I never seem to get the get like I don't get the meal kits. Your your I, uh... your desk is down on the second floor, and so the. <laughs> If you come up to the fifth floor, that's where we keep the bags. So I've used them. Some of the other hosts have used them on various trips. They're fantastic. Now, one thing I understand that you can do with the away bag is you can charge your phone with the, your away bag. Yeah, it's great. It's fantastic because... Uh, you're just I, plugging your phone into your bag? You're plugging your phone into your bag. Nice. Not just your phone. You can plug in your tablet. It, you can charge a bunch of things with it. It's fantastic. And I can vividly remember sitting at a bar... When I had a layover, and I just rolled my bag up, and my phone was dying a little bit, I plugged it right into my bag, and uh, sipped an adult beverage at the bar, knowing that by the time I was getting back on a plane, uh, my phone was going to be fully charged. Now, there are multiple ports. The guy sitting next to me, who was clearly frustrated that his phone had died... Was that an opportunity for me to say, hey, you can charge? Yes, right. it was, and I didn't. But the thing is, it was actually an electric <laughs> razor he had in his hand. You just didn't want to be that guy that lets the guy shave off of his bag. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't That was too much that. for you. That was too much. That was, I, he's a perfect stranger. All right, so Away has a special offer just for the listeners of this show. That's right, 20 bucks off a suitcase. Sounds good to me. Go to awaytravel.com slash fool. And use promo code FOOL at checkout. Chris, thanks a lot for joining me here on RBI. It's my pleasure. Can I just add one more thing? Heck yes. Away offers a risk-free 100-day trial period. Here's my prediction. You're not going to need the 100 days. You can try it. It's great that they offer it. Once you try this bag, you're not sending it back. That is awesome. That's awaytravel.com slash FOOL, promo code FOOL. All right. Well, from love and relationships and then technology, we next move to your section on lifestyle. Once again, you've got 10 microtrends, Mark, and I'm pulling out two that jump out at me. So let's go to number 26 in your book, and that's single with pet. Oh, SWPs. Some of my favorite uh, new trends because it's, <laughs> it's been worth billions of dollars to the pet industry. Look, here was the old bottle of getting pets. You had a seven or eight year old child screaming for a cute pet, <laughs> a dog or a cat. I was that kid. You would probably get it, right? And and that pet lived in a community, right, where I was lucky to get some table scraps, right? <laughs> and, and, and that shared experience was how the pet lived life. Now, there are, in Microtrends 1, what happened was pet parents, when people left the nest, then they would get these pets and, and really lavish them like kids. Now, what's happened is first year of childbirth, moved back five years. So a lot of people will spend 18 to 29 to 30, 32 on their own. A lot of those people say, you know, my house is a little empty. How about a pet? And so they buy their, this is a pre-child pet that they get to experiment with, lavish love, you know, buy GMO-free food, and then, of course, because they're working, they need dog walkers. <laughs> then if you're, if you're hiring millennials, you better have a dog policy for your office, right? And, and so this whole kind of culture then of millennial pets, seven out of ten millennials have pets. Now, this works pretty well. A couple of billion dollars for the pet industry. Millennials love their pets. They're lavished well. What happens is, because the pet came first, Children and a spouse come second, that pet is emotionally crushed. That's uh, not the world they knew. Right. They knew the world where they were number one. Oh, 
this is good biz for pet psychologists. <laughs> that used to be just true of the eldest when a new little sibling showed up, and now I see what you're saying. It's it's kind of the pets are the new eldest. <laughs> uh, exactly, the sunk with pets. It's a tragedy. Now, I also love your, your line in this chapter. Uh, again, I'm talking with Mark Penn, the author of Micro Trends Squared. And Mark, I loved your line, dog photos are the new baby photos. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, millennials love these pictures. And well, they should, you know. It, 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 it's, a great, it's a great activity. I wouldn't have thought that it would have happened because part of being footloose and fancy free is being footloose and fancy free. And once you get a pet, you know, you just can't uh, get in the car or get on a plane and travel down to that beach without without a, a dog walker, a kennel, and or, or some way of the dog traveling with you. Yep, and when you use that phrase, footloose and fancy-free, that was not going to be the next trend I went to. I'm going to go to a different one, but just to reference it, it that's also one of your micro-trends. And you, you point out, you alluded to it earlier, that in, in the U.S., the median age at first marriage has increased by five years since 1970. So it used to be at most maybe five years from like high school graduation to marriage, and then kids has expanded instead to 10 years. Well, and I think this is one of the most powerful microtrends affecting religion, education, uh, lifestyle, roommates, uh, uh, online uh, uh, apps. Uh, it really has had a tremendous and profound effect on our society. Mm. All right, but let's next go to number 34. And I thought this was hilarious because I didn't have a phrase. One of the things that a guy who helped coin soccer moms does is he kind of captures something that before there was a word or a label didn't exist in our minds. It's reification. And so you reified for me with number 34, this phrase, armchair preppers. So my recollection of this chapter, Mark, is you're talking about people who think the world's going to end and they're preparing for it, but they're armchair. These are not professionals. This is this is mom and pop thinking, you know, we need a plan or a place. Just think of these as kind of uh, laid back armchair preppers. You know, they don't have <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, carefully sunk concrete bunker in Montana. <laughs> what they have is a $5,000 go bag, you know, complete with a little gold, some fixings, you know, <laughs> some things that'll, that'll get them through, maybe a good weekend in Las Vegas. Uh, and, and I think, though, that a lot of people give thought to this and, and at least feel prepared now as armchair peppers. And this has opened up kind of a 4 million American marketplace for all of the products that people buy that, of course, most likely they will never, ever use, but they like having them. It gives them a, a, uh, a psychological feeling of better well-being to know that they are an armchair prepper. And one thing that I picked up in this chapter is it's not so much crazy people out and let's just randomly pick on the state. This is not fair. I love you. Montana. So Montanans, Montanan fools, you're some of my favorite Motley Fool fans out there. But let's just go with, these are not just crazy people who are living rurally. A lot of the armchair preppers, I actually have friends of these. I didn't have a phrase for them until I read this chapter, but these are really upscale professionals often. This is like happening in New York City. Well, exactly. And remember, look, 9-11 did hit New York City. People didn't know what was going to happen. We were frozen here in, in D.C. when 9-11 happened. I was stuck in Seattle. 
My wife didn't know where to go. She didn't have a go bag. She didn't know what to do. So I think that there's genuine end of the world, but there's also these situations that can occur that would freeze society for a week or two weeks with no money, no gasoline. Uh, And I think people want to be prepared. Well, and this is uh, pretty au courant. So, Mark, you and I are taping this interview on Thursday August 16th, but it's actually airing, well, when my listeners are hearing it, but it's about a week later. So, I'm referencing something that I heard about today that keyed right into your chapter. So, in the chapter you mentioned, you're quoting a New Yorker writer, Evan Osnos, who said that many a prepper is purchasing real estate in New Zealand. I wanted you to talk about that in a sec, but I just saw in The Economist today that New Zealand has outlawed the purchase of homes, at least older homes, by foreigners, because so many people, preppers, have identified New Zealand as their place. Well, I think that's considered the ultimate isolated survival island that everything else could get knocked out, diseased, and polluted. There are more sheep in New Zealand than people. Uh, And so, I I didn't see this article that they're (laughs) clamping down on that. Yeah. But that is a prepper's dream. I don't quite clear how they're going to get there, but if they could get there, they figure they're going to be isolated and safe. Yeah, in fact, just to quote the economist here before we move on to the next micro trend, but here's what I read today, Mark quote, New Zealand is to ban foreigners from buying houses in the country. The government is worried that the number of non residents purchasing holiday homes is pricing locals out of the market. New Zealand is particularly popular with Chinese investors and rich Western quotes survivalists, keen for somewhere remote to escape the coming apocalypse. The law doesn't apply to many new builds." End quote. Darn, we'll have to just find some other place better than New Zealand. <laughs> All right, and now our final section for this podcast. Let's go to where this podcast lives and breathes most weeks, and it's work and business. And of course, many interesting, too many interesting microtrends to talk about with you today, Mark, but I have pulled out two. The first one is number 42 in the book, and it's entitled Self Data Lovers. And I just kind of love this section because you helped me realize I'm a self data lover. Can you briefly define our term? Well, a self-data lover is someone who really has become a data junkie in a lot of ways, really loves to follow heartbeat, pressure, steps, <laughs> all of the things that, that can be accumulated now on yourself that you could never really know before, uh, mostly through your apps and your and, and, and smartphones. And, and so I think you, if you become that, it, it, in many ways then, controls your behavior, because the more information you get about yourself, oh, maybe I'm going to have to walk 10,000 steps every day, oh, you know, (laughs) changes your behavior because you become obsessed with meeting numerical goals in your life. Yeah, and you said what's most surprising, I'm quoting from the book again, what's most surprising from these self-data lovers is that while a growing number of consumers are concerned about data mining and big data tracking by industries, many life loggers seem more than willing to share personal information with whoever is interested, supplying health symptoms and treatments to uh, sites like Patients Like Me and Cure Together, Um, playlists and the number of times they've listened to a particular song to Spotify, and the number of calories they just ate at dinner to too many apps to mention. Well, this is where self-data lovers and big data really intersect. Because to the extent that we're looking for a cure for cancer and we're trying to figure out what people did that that improved their chances of survival, or to the extent that we're trying to understand what produces obesity or 
the extent we're trying to find how to detect the early warning signs of a heart condition or heart attack, the more big data you get, uh, the, the better our predictive capabilities can be. I mean, we, we had as one of our first clients at Microsoft in the cloud an elevator company that had 50,000 elevators. And by knowing every every floor that each elevator went to and how much stress it was under and how many people, they could predict with much greater accuracy who and what was going to break down when. Mm. And same thing with people. So, so I think that being a data junkie changes people's individual lives, but it, it may actually help us as a society. And that is very promising, so I'll feel good then about continuing to track my steps, my sleep, and uh, various other things that I use my iPhone and Apple Watch to do. And maybe you'll get to sell it. I mean, right now, you're giving away most of your data for free in exchange to use some apps. And uh, I think we're going to fast come upon the day when you're going to say, hey, that's my data. You want to buy it? Okay, 100 bucks. Subscribe to my data. Subscribe to Mark Penn's data. 10 bucks a month. That sounds pretty smart, and in fact, that reminds me, in the chapter, you do mention that at Harvard, they've been experimenting with what they're calling a, a can, which is basically like your personal data in a receptacle, just all that we're generating, and that maybe that could be a thing, your can and my can, and we're renting it or selling it. And you're right, it does make a lot of sense to me um, for consumers to take a little bit more ownership of that data, because it's valuable. And one of the things that I do when I pick stocks is I'm often trying to figure out who has the most data out there. Those are the companies often I look to recommend. Whoever has the most data wins, but that should also be true of us as consumers. Well, data is the new oil, and amazingly, each one of us has our own mini oil well ready to pump out that stuff, which right now we're giving away for free, and if you could monetize, and you could monetize that to your benefit in various ways as opposed to letting the technology companies monetize it for you in exchange for whatever free services they think you would like. That makes a lot of sense to me. All right, let's move to our final microchem we're going to talk about on this podcast, and that is number 44, virtual entrepreneurs. So, certainly a lot of entrepreneurs listening right now, a lot of people who might one day want to be an entrepreneur. And part of what you point out with this microtrend, Mark, is that it's easier than ever before to be and become an entrepreneur. Yes, I, I think people... Think of the cloud as an innovation for book business. In fact, the cloud is one of the greatest innovations for small business and for individual business since the PC. You can now sit down at a PC, your iPad, or even your phone, uh, and you could start your entire business. You could you could get onto word processing and other software in the cloud. You can sign up for your payroll. You can register typically with, with your state government. You can get your federal tax ID. You can be off and running, right, and be a virtual entrepreneur uh, operating a business in a couple of hours with a smartphone or, or an iPad. And then you may or may not also be able to make your entire income right off of the kind of new virtual entrepreneur opportunities that are out there, particularly being an influencer. I mean, look, your dog, if you could get your dog to have 250,000 <laughs> followers, your dog could well be worth $100,000 a year. So put your dog to virtual entrepreneurship. But you can come up, whether it's retail, whether it's selling digital goods, whether it's games, whether it's even doing podcasts like this. There's so many new ways that you can actually make some money uh, look, I started out at age 13 
And I sold stamps to collectors through the mail. They just didn't know they were dealing with a 13-year-old. <laughs> Today, any 13-year-old can have a virtual business on eBay. I sure would have had one. Mm. And you do mention that chapter, The Rise of Virtual Entrepreneurs, you wrote, I'm quoting, stands to help American women in particular. Well, because the, the, the new kind of, uh, you know, mom-and-pop store is the mom-and-pop consulting biz. Right, and particularly a, a lot of women who want to be able to work part time go into consulting opportunities that now they can actually work part time virtually. So many different ways to control your own occupation and to create an occupation that didn't exist and deliver a service without even leaving your home. But I, I think people underestimate the virtual entrepreneurship abilities and opportunities open to Americans today. And human creativity, in my experience anyway, knows no bounds, and surprising new things pop up here and there. And We read books like yours to hear about them for the first time. I hadn't really heard much about virtual restaurants. Yeah, you were writing that these, quotes restaurants would have no wait staff and no host or hostess, just a kitchen creating delicious food with the idea that ordering online and through app services would be enough to sustain a business. You just kind of walk well, into a virtual restaurant. Exactly. Exactly, because you can, you know, it's very interesting. Some of the most interesting Japanese restaurants have eliminated takeout, but you can have a virtual restaurant by just having takeout, just having Postmates pick up the food, and so you never have to do any of that other stuff. You just need to create an online image. To create an online image and turn out and turn out the food, you never have to deal with a waiter again. All right. Well, we left it right there for now. The weekend extra with health and diet and politics will be coming your way starting Saturday morning. But just reflecting briefly on that conversation with Mark, I first met Mark just a few weeks ago. I mentioned having heard him speak before. It was at my book club. Uh, He was gracious enough as a Washington, D.C. author to come to the book club that I'm a member of, and that's how I got to first meet him and read his book. And so, I guess I want to just give some props to being in a book club or the benefits of a book club. That's kind of what we're doing together this month. I've invited you into the Rule Breaker Investing Book Club. We've spent one month this year, authors in August, just reading some books together. And in fact, it's worth mentioning that if you read a book in the last 12 months, that puts you among three quarters of your fellow Americans, if you're American. Uh, one in four Americans did not read a book in the last 12 months. So, I, I, I'm glad. I, I hope that you're with us in the three quarters. And it's really so beneficial, I think, to have our thinking tested, deepened, and enriched by seeing other viewpoints and diverse topics. And this certainly has been a diverse month. And I'll, I'll mention ahead of time, since if you like to read ahead, I'm going to let you do so as well, I have one author coming up in September. It's Ed Glazer, the very talented Harvard economist who wrote the book Triumph of the City, which is an amazing exploration of why cities work. And again, as entrepreneurs, as investors, it's really good to understand why people keep moving to the cities and why they count for so much. So, that's a book I loved. I couldn't finish it in time to have him as one of my authors in August, but I will definitely be having Ed on the show in September. And so, yes, Ed Glazer, Triumph of the City coming up. But next week, it is the final Wednesday of the month. So, of course, it is your Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag. I'd love to hear from you some of the insights that you've gained over the course of our authors in August. I'll probably favor anybody who writes in to rbi at fool.com, our email address, or tweets at us at RBI Podcast on Twitter. I'll probably favor anybody who has some thoughts or challenges or anecdotes in support of any of the authors, Seth Godin, Priya Parker, Amor Tolls, and Mark Penn, that you got to hear from 
this month. So, yeah, so I'm always excited. It's mailbag next week. Get your mailbag questions to us. And yet, don't forget, Saturday morning, I continue my conversation with Mark Penn. In the meantime, fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.